Good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Mark Calabria, our Director of Financial Regulation at the Cato Institute, uh, and I want to thank you all for uh, braving what is some cold weather to get here today. Um, I think it's an opportune time to revisit our financial system. Uh, yesterday was Janet Yellen's first appearance as Fed Chair before the House. Tomorrow is her first appearance before the Senate. So this is sort of, uh, I think, her day off. So I hope she's actually watching. That would be nice. Might learn a few things. Um, I also think that the 100 years of the Federal Reserve provides us an opportune time to look back, uh, offer some alternatives, think about what the next 100 years should look like. Um, for those of you who come to hear my uh, very gracious and overflowing introductions to the speakers, I'm going to apologize because we're going to do something just a little bit different today, uh, and that Steve Forbes is going to introduce our speaker, Nathan Lewis. Uh, after Nathan gives his presentation, um, George Mason University professor and Cato scholar Larry White will come up uh, and offer some comments on the book, which there are copies outside for the very special price of $10. Uh, Nathan will be very happy to sign them. I will also note that we have copies of a recent paper that uh, Larry has done for us, Recent Arguments Against the Gold Standard, which is free, although I'm also sure that Larry would be happy to sign it for you. <laughs> uh, I will also note we have some copies of another recent paper, The Rise and Fall of the Gold Standard uh, in the United States by also Cato scholar George Selgin, which I am sure George is here in spirit. Uh, with that, let me turn the podium over to Steve. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mark, and thank all of you for coming out here today. It is an honor to introduce Nathan. He is author of uh, two books, actually, on this subject. One was in 2007 called uh, Gold and the Once and, Fu the Once and Future Money, and his new one, uh, Gold, the Monetary Polaris. Together, they're the two finest books on the subject of money and gold that you're going to find. Uh, together, they're superb and comprehensive. They're very easy to read, which to lay people is a, a godsend. They're primers, they're histories, and they're how-to books. How do you do a gold standard? The other day, Nathan observed that if uh, tomorrow, which would never happen, but let's fantasize for a moment, uh, the president said we should have a gold standard, it wouldn't work because no one knows there how to do it. They would make a total hash of it. So that's why this book is so important. Both books together, they're an enormous service. And it starts with the definition of money. For all the highfalutin talk about money, money, as Nathan emphasizes and a handful of others, simply makes it easier to do transactions with each other, infinitely easier than barter. So money is a measure of value, just as a scale is a measure of weight, clock a measure of time, ruler a measure of length. And so in terms of gold, Think of it as a yardstick, think of it as a ruler, and things become suddenly very, very clear. Uh, you can have coins if you want, but a gold standard just means you have a measure to make sure that they have a stable value for the money, just as when you go buy a pound of hamburger, it's 16 ounces, not 13, not 18, not 12. You don't have to worry about uh, floating uh, weights. You don't have to worry about uh, floating scales. Imagine getting on a scale each day and uh, what, what, is the, what, what, what does the pound represent? So instantly at the Federal Reserve, they deal with obesity by declaring that uh, the pound is now 32 ounces rather than 16. Voila, uh, we've lost a lot of weight. Not in the real world. It's just very, very distortive. 
As Nathan makes clear in his books, gold is not perfect, but it is the best thing that we have. In the laboratory of history, it is the only thing that works over time. And he has fascinating histories. For example, Holland. How in the world did a small country under the thumb of Spain or trying to get out from the thumb of the Spanish monarchy, very poor land, underwater, literally, uh, their businesses weren't, but uh, the country was always having to fight water, excess liquidity, you might say. And yet, <laughs> and yet, and yet because of uh, sound money, they became a glow-girdling empire. Uh, Britain was a second-tier nation till the 1690s. Uh, Britain had everything going for it. It had property rights, well-established, had relative freedom of movement. Going back to Magna Carta, had a very strong parliament, contrast that with what happened in France when they had a revolt in France in the 1600s, the Fronde, very, there was crushed by the center. In England, the uh, parliamentary forces won, chopped the king's head off. And when the monarchy came back, they had more tussles, but ultimately parliament triumphed. But Britain was still a second-tier nation. But in the 1690s, thanks to Newton, John Locke, and a handful of others, sound money came in, and it became the greatest uh, power, most powerful nation ever until we came along, and we took uh, sound money a step further, starting in the 1790s. So he deals with uh, not only those histories, but the history of Japan. He deals with the Depression, what really happened there, Bretton Woods. He deals very brilliantly with misconceptions about trade. Trade has none, I'll, I'll be even more blunt than he is, since I'm not running for anything anymore. Uh, trade, <laughs> trade, trade has nothing to do with the value of a currency. It's about how you keep it stable. And so all this palaver about current account that we're reading now in emerging markets, I just I don't have too much hair left, but I pull it out. And, and, and he deals wonderfully with the myths of the gold standard. You hear economists today, and you think that gold standard invented the bubonic plague <laughs> and uh, obesity and anything else that uh, has, has you worried. But as he points out, during the classical gold era, the United States and other countries had great growth. Industrial production, I think he pointed out, between 1870, 1870 and 1913, 682%. So all this stuff about gold being so terrible. And he deals with myths of the monetary base. I mean, that's one thing a central bank can control. But then in his book, he makes a comparison to ETFs, exchange-traded funds. The shares can go up and down in terms of amount in terms of keeping something stable, like GLD, the, the gold ETF. Uh, the shares can go up and down, trying to make sure that the fund attracts the price of gold. Well, that's what you do in a gold standard. So he has this wonderful way of making things that can be immensely complicated into something that uh, people can actually understand. He hits the neo-mercantilism of Keynesian and monetarism, the idea that you can uh, use money to direct an economy. You can use money to muck up an economy, but directing it like a thermostat is preposterous. He also discusses alternative currencies. Now, he hit hard in our, our columns in Forbes the Bitcoin because that kind of fluctuating value makes it useless as a currency. But what it speaks to is a thirst for alternatives to central bank fiat money. So in the Polaris, he took a step further from his first book and discussed various ways of doing a gold standard. There's not one be-all, end-all. There are various ways you can do this thing. And he explains it very patiently. So uh, this formula is simple. Keep tax rates low, keep money sound, and good things will flow from it. So perfect that uh, sophisticates can't understand it. <laughs> so these books are perfect for, the, for, for us lay people. 
And Nathan is perfect for the battle of ideas. He doesn't like me to mention this, but uh, he's uh, descended from Samari warriors in Japan on his mother's side. And he's a perfect warrior for the battle of ideas. That's why we're proud to have him as a columnist in Forbes.com. And he's a, a Dartmouth graduate, but thankfully, we're discussing it this morning, he did no graduate work, which means, you know, Larry's an exception here. He, he, he got a PhD, but he didn't get corrupted by the prevailing wisdom. He created his own wisdom. You'll hear from him shortly. But, uh, but like Adam Smith and others, it takes an outsider like Nathan to see the truth of things, not get corrupted by prevailing false orthodoxies. So Nathan is a good man, great scholar, done a great book, two great books, great service for the nation and ultimately the world. So enough of my palaver. Let's get to the gold uh, standard of good scholarship. Uh, Nathan, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was a, a wonderful introduction. I hope I, something like that happens to me again sometime in my lifetime because it was so <laughs> exceptional. Um, well, I have a, you know, a presentation for you today. Uh, this is, tends to be a very complicated topic. I try to have something where some of you might have be coming to this topic for the first time in serious discussion uh, and uh, want to have something that you can relate to easily and also like Larry White here, some of us have been thinking about these things for 20, 30 years and hope to have something uh, that would excite and interest uh, those people too. Um, uh, I'm from Kiku Capital Management, LLC. That's my day job, an asset manager. Um, I also have a website, newworldeconomics.com. So I like pictures. I think pictures uh, can serve a role in this kind of debate that uh, words, sometimes you get too many words and they're really complicated. Uh, this is my picture of the brief history of the dollar. It actually dates from far be, uh, before the United States to a silver coin made in Germany in 1518. Roughly 29 grams of silver, exactly the same as the uh, silver coins from the 1920s or the 1890s, as we have there. Those are some 16th century Austrian dollar coins uh, on the left and the U.S. silver dollar on the right. Uh, this is the bimetallic era. Silver and gold were basically interchangeable, so I basically consider this a gold standard system. People at the time did too. Um, and so you can see that the value of the dollar didn't change for about 400 years. And then there was one time devaluation in 1933. That's Roosevelt in the Great Depression. And then we have in 1971, the transition to the floating currency era. And that's that little squiggle on the right. So, um, you know, the idea of a gold-linked dollar is a very old and very long tradition, and we should really know more about this than we do. That big crevasse in the middle is my uh, representation of the uh, hyperinflation of the 1780s, um, just before the United States was founded in 1789. So this is the same chart, uh, the U.S. portion of the chart, 1789 to 1971, the United States had a uh, gold standard system, gold standard policy for the US dollar. 182 years, during those 182 years, it became the most successful country in the world. And we don't really think about this very much. I think we should. Uh, you know, 1971, that's that floating currency era. We think this is normal. Um, in US history, it's rather <laughs> abnormal. And of course, you know, using gold as money is, People don't realize how old this is and how fundamental to human experience this is. It actually goes back to the very beginnings of human history. The Sumerian civilization, Mesopotamia, fourth millennium BC, 
they had gold coins and they used them and they had silver coins too. Greek gold, a gold coin from the seventh century BC, a Roman gold coin from the first century AD, Chinese, sixth century BC, they were using gold coins. Uh, Kushan Empire of Northern India, gold coin from the second century AD. And when the Spaniards uh, discovered and then looted the new world, they were very happy to find that the Incas not only made jewelry out of gold, they actually made these rectangular ingots that look quite a lot like the rectangular ingots we make today and store in central bank vaults. So this has been around a long, long time. And it's not because of some superstition. Everyone had the same superstition all around the world for 5,000 years. I say it's because it works. There's a reason why it works. And uh, I think if there's one idea I think you could take away from some of this, it's the idea of there being two monetary paradigms, uh, what I call the classical and mercantilist paradigm. People tend to mishmash them in their mind a little bit, uh, but they're, they're very contrary and very distinct. Uh, let's go down some of the characteristics of the classical paradigm, the hard money paradigm. Uh, the rule of law, 23.2 troy grains of gold for is a dollar, $20.67 an ounce. Stable currency value is the goal. You saw that straight line, right? Avoid government manipulation. Gold link enables stable money. It's a means to an end. Unstable money causes problems. Leave credit up to the free market. Interest rates left to the free market. Fixed exchange rates are good. You can't devalue yourself to prosperity. All kind of familiar things, nothing new. You heard it somewhere before. Let's go to the mercantilist paradigm, the soft money paradigm, the rule of man. Ben Bernanke, Janet Yellen, they make it up as they go along. Full employment is the goal. Constant government management of the economy and the currency. The gold link prevents management. They don't like gold standard system. Money manipulation solves problems. Hmm, haven't heard that before. Manipulate credit for macro effect. Interest rates are managed. Floating currencies allow adjustment. In the long run, we're all dead. Kind of a short-term policy, you know? Does anyone think uh, QE is gonna be good for the long-term benefit of the United States? Even Ben Bernanke might not buy that one. And if you look at the this characteristics of the mercantilist paradigm, it's very clear we have a mercantilist paradigm today, not the classical paradigm that we had in the United States for most of its history. Uh, you know, people think that we use gold as money or gold as a basis of money because of superstition or habit or something. I don't think so. Uh, these people knew what they were doing. A currency, to be perfect, should be absolutely invariable in value. The classical paradigm, straight up. David Ricardo, Proposals for a Sound and Economical Currency, 1816. British pound is actually a floating currency at this time. Ricardo helped put him back on the gold standard in 1821. The individualistic capitalism of today, precisely because it entrusts saving to the individual investor, production to the individual employer, presumes a stable measuring rod of value and cannot be efficient, perhaps cannot survive without one. Stable measuring of rod of value. Steve Forbes was talking about that about 45 seconds ago. Uh, John Maynard Keynes, 1923. Mercantilism. Uh, if money can be made of paper, a statesman, Ben Bernanke has it in his power to increase or diminish the extent of credit and paper, money in circulation, by various expedients which greatly influence the rate of interest. From these principles and others which naturally flow from them, may a statesman steer a very certain course towards bringing the rate of interest as low as the prosperity of trade requires. That sounds a little familiar. That's a 1767. This stuff is old. It's been around forever. It wasn't invented by academics in the 20th century, even though they want to claim that even though they probably don't even know about this history. <laughs> so the gold standard system, uh, we did it for 182 years in the United States. We did it, people did it around the world. 
basically until 1971, for hundreds of years, it is the foundation of capitalism, modern capitalism. For some reason, we don't know much about it. Uh, you hear lots of silly things. Um, it does not depend on the quantity of gold available. It's not about mining supply. It's not about the number of bars in a vault somewhere. It's a value link, $20.67 per ounce of gold, or 23.2 troy grains per dollar. Does not cause an inflexible money supply, does not create balanced trade, does not prevent government budget deficits. They've had those before 1971. Does not disallow fractional reserve banking, does not disallow central banking or a lender of last resort. These are 19th century uh, innovations. If it happened during the gold standard period in the United States before 1971, then obviously it was possible with a gold standard system. Uh, seems kind of obvious to me. A gold standard system produces money that is stable in value. That's what it does. So we don't have to hypothesize about this. We have quite a lot of history. Um, this is government, British, uh, government bond yields in Britain, 1821 to 1914. Britain returned to the gold standard after the Napoleonic Wars period, floating currency, in 1821 and 1914, World War I. Nearly a century. Uh, these are console bonds. It's not a 10-year bond. It's not a 30-year bond. This actually is an infinite maturity government bond. The average yield on the infinite maturity government bond for that 100-year period was 3.15%, pretty low. Um, this is you know, the, the, one of the premier measures of monetary and macroeconomic stability. Not only was this very low, but it's incredibly stable. That century, uh, the yield varied slightly within roughly 100 basis point range. Um, this is so close to perfection, it's difficult to think of any possible criticism. This is the gold standard in action for 100 years. This is what capitalism used to look like. It's what it's supposed to look like. This is what it looks like today. This is a catastrophe. This is, this is chaos. If, a British, you look British per, if you showed a British person from the 19th century what we put up with today, they would have said, you're nuts. And they would be right. We just don't think about it very much. Um, so gold is, you know, stable measure of value, the monetary polaris. Uh, we might see this, expect this to be reflected in commodity prices. Here's 400 years of commodity prices in Britain related to uh, gold, ounces of gold. There's a little variation, but it's pretty darn flat, and some of the bigger uh, humps and spikes are actually attributable to wars. Uh, World War I is that big spike in 1914. Uh, it's not supposed to be, you know, sort of ruler flat. Uh, if gold was the sort of stable me measure of value, as, as people claimed and hoped, it, you, I would say that you would expect results something like this. So I think this is actually a very extraordinary result as well. Uh, the gold standard era was a time of fixed exchange rates. We think that floating currencies are some sort of natural phenomenon. They're not. Uh, they appeared in 1971. Before then, if you have one uh, currency linked to gold, you have another currency linked to gold, <laughs> then they just naturally have a, a, a fixed exchange rate with each other. Japanese yen, 360 yen per ounce uh, per dollar, uh, year after year after year. Bretton Woods system, 1971, everything kind of blows up, and we have this, this endless chaos. We don't know what the, Japan, the yen dollar rate is going to be a week from now or a month from now. Kind of makes business difficult. Um, this is per capita GDP. Uh, of course, you know GDP statistics from the 19th century are highly hypothetical, but we do our best. Uh, how many per capita GDP in terms of ounces of gold? And of course, until 1971, ounces of gold and dollars were very, pretty much the same thing. And we see, you know, a, a enormous. Uh, steady growth rate is actually roughly a 3% growth trend uh, represented parabolically. And, you know, in that 
182-year uh, period, there were some major setbacks, Civil War, Great Depression, World War II. There were some tough times in there. But pretty soon, um, after a relatively short time, this was making new highs. The American, average American, was getting wealthier year after year, generation after generation. And that's how the United States became from kind of this experiment in, in, in constitutional government to you know, the world economic superpower. That's it represented right there. And the interesting thing here is that beginning in 1971 to the present, that 3% a year sort of parabolic trend disappears. We go into a, a pattern of stagnation and arguably decline. Um, there was a recovery in the 80s and 90s, but you didn't make new highs. And now here we are over 40 years after the introduction of mercantilist monetary approach to the United States. And by this measure, we're actually, you know, it's quite horrible where we are. Uh, we're back to like basically a 1920s level. And uh, it's almost it's difficult to imagine that the average American today might be actually no better off than the average American in 1920s. Uh, but maybe you should consider that possibility. Um, so is this reflected anywhere else? Uh, this is the median full-time male income uh, in so-called CPI-adjusted $2,010 straight out of the government uh, from 1955 to 2010. Once again, during the gold standard era before 1971, we have this steady improvement uh, in you know, how much the average full-time male was, made, was, was paid. Guy shows up for work, puts in his eight hours, gets paid more and more every year. And, uh, you know, they had hard times in, in the 50s and 60s. Uh, you know, there were recessions uh, in the 60s. You know, entire generation of young people decided they were going to drop out and smoke pot. Uh, they were, there was inner city um, unrest, uh, you know, white flight. Uh, it's tough. But nevertheless, this trend towards getting wealthier every year, by the way, the, the dates came out. The dates got a little messed up on this chart for some reason. But that's 1971 where that inflection, 72 is where that inflection point is. Um, and then something happened, just happens to coincide with this major change in U.S. monetary policy. And then this stagnates for 40 years. All, for 40 years, U.S. workers not getting any wealthier. Um, oddly enough, this doesn't make very much of an improvement in the 80s and 90s, uh, even though there was certainly some improvement in those years. And this is the uh, government's data adjusted by the CPI. And as we know, they keep revising how they, uh, how they compute the CPI. And every time they revise it, it looks better than it would if they didn't revise it. And there's an economist, John Williams, who backs out all the revisions they made since 1980. He says, uh, well, let's just figure out the CPI the same way they did it in 1980 and, and forget about these innovations. And it turns out when you do that, this story of stagnation turns into the story of decline represented by that dotted line. And so, uh, which kind of looks like that uh, ounces of gold, uh, per capita GDP in terms of ounces of gold chart we looked at. So maybe there's a little more to this than would appear. Um, if you ask the American, average American family, median family, uh, is maybe things getting worse year after year? Mm, they might agree with you on that one. So. 182 years, gold-based currency, classical approach in the United States, we became world superpower economically and militarily. 42 years of stagnation, decline. Um, you know, I don't need any more uh, testing. <laughs> For me, you know, obviously we go back to the classical system. Not a very popular idea in the United States today, oddly enough. Uh, but it's an idea that is um, other people in the world actually kind of agree with. This is... President of Russia, Dmitry Medvedev, July 2009 at a G8 meeting, the world currency meeting, 
holds up a half-ounce gold bullion coin and says, it's an example of a united future world currency. Huh, isn't that interesting? So uh, a lot of my new book is about the how, because you can say, yeah, go do it, and if no one knows how to do it, then it's not going to happen, right? Um, there's a lot of variations of, of ways you can set up gold standard systems, uh, but at some basic level, some foundational level, are they all pretty similar to currency boards, this sort of automatic adjustment mechanism of, of currency boards. We have currency boards today linked to the dollar and euro. If you can make a currency board linked to the euro, can you make a currency board linked to gold? And yeah, you can. Here's uh, Steve Hankey, familiar face around here. Uh, he's established currency boards in a number of countries worldwide. He's, you know, he's the guy who actually does these things. Uh, 2012, he says, yeah, you want to do a currency board linked to gold? No problem, not that hard. And so we can look at these existing currency boards and, and look at how they work. Here's the Kong, Hong Kong uh, currency board with the dollar. Uh, they have this in one characteristic of it, for some reason, the, the date's got messed up here. This is uh, six months in the second half of 2010, daily data. And once you see, you're seeing that daily adjustment mechanism, which is characteristic of all currency boards, uh, it's automatic. There's no, pol you know, like central bank policy board making these decisions. This is sort of the core uh, element of a currency board system and also all properly functioning gold standard systems. Another uh, thing that uses a very much similar sort of system are these uh, um, gold bullion ETFs, which have been very popular throughout the world. Uh, this is the shares outstanding of the GLD ETF. Um, it's increased by enormous amount, very popular product. And we're, again, we're seeing that sort of you know, fine variation. It actually does go down to the daily scale. Uh, the natural automatic adjustment process inherent in a currency board or an ETF and also any properly designed gold standard system. Well, once you see this, um, we know immediately that the money, the base money supply, the shares outstanding, has nothing to do with gold mining, gold imports or exports, the balance of payments, interest rates, fiscal policy, unemployment, GDP statistics, all this stuff that people talk about. It doesn't work that way. Um, same is true of gold standard systems uh, historically and in, in potentially in the future. So the way humans basically learn, uh, these are complicated topics. Uh, the way humans basically learn anything is they look over the shoulder of someone who knows how to do it. Um, whether, whether you're fixing cars or selling bonds or whatever you're doing, that's how you do it. So let's look over the shoulder of the person who was, the, the, without question, the premier institution of the pre-1914 gold standard era, the Bank of England. This is the Bank of England's balance sheet, abbreviated from 1720 to 1913, nearly 200 years. Uh, the British pound was the premier uh, international currency in the world by the end of that period. The Bank of England was the premier institution that everyone wanted to imitate. Um, the blue bars here are the banknotes outstanding, British pound banknotes outstanding. Uh, the uh, red bars here are the gold bullion holdings of the bank reserves, the gold reserve and as we see, uh, these are, this is annual data, but this is not some kind of smooth curve relating to mining production. This is, there's lots of ups and downs here, uh, kind of like those ETFs, kind of like those currency boards. It's a similar sort of system. Um, there's not a lot of relation to the amount of gold they have in the vault. That's the, that's the red. Uh, in fact, the relationship between the two is that gray line. It's not a 100% reserve system. In fact, there's no stable reserve policy at all. It's kind of all over the map. Uh, it's... It settles down a lot after 1845 because there were, the Bank of England kind of came under regulation because they wanted things to be a little more stable, basically. Um, that 
blue bar represents that floating currency period I mentioned before during the Napoleonic Wars. It went off in 1797, went back to a formalized gold standard system in 1821. 23 years of floating currencies. So, you know, if you want to look at what a major international currency looks like as it goes from gold standard system to a floating currency system back to a gold standard system, we've done this before. It's not that complicated. So once again, we're going to look over the Bank of England's shoulder during its, its heyday. Uh, 1845 to 1913, this, people call this the part of the classical pre-1914 gold standard system. Uh, the blue line is uh, base money. Uh, by 1845, uh, the Bank of England is, my, is, I would argue, operating very much like a, a modern central bank uh, where uh, the deposits are the so-called bank reserves and operate much as a, as a component of base money. And uh, there it is. Once again, it's a wiggly line. It's, it's very much like those currency boards and ETFs we looked before. Uh, we looked at before, and uh, you can just get an idea of how the thing actually worked. The, actually, with the Bank of England is it was a very complicated uh, system. Is arguably overcomplicated. Um, sort of a, a simple currency board system would would be a little different. But I, I would argue that the basic mechanisms were the same. We even have weekly data for the Bank of England. Uh, this is two years, 1904, 1905, a placid time. Uh, weekly data, uh, the top is that base money again, uh, once again, wiggly line, that automatic adjustment mechanisms in action. Uh, the orange is the banknotes in circulation, and the black is uh, deposits, so-called bank reserves. Um, on the asset side, once again, this is not a 100% bullion reserve system. They had government bonds. They had other bonds, which is corporate and possibly foreign, foreign government bonds. Uh, and they also had direct lending, which is called, a, you know, and discounting, which is called notes in this, in this graph. Active in all four asset classes on a continuous basis. Like I said, it's probably a little overcomplicated, this system, but uh, it gives you an idea of how the masters did it. Just, just look at it. You want to set up a gold standard system? Better learn, Betsy. Because that's what England looks like. Uh, here we have the United States. The United States took a completely different approach. The Bank of England had a, basically a currency monopoly. They were the only issuer. In the United States, uh, as Larry Wright, White has written books about, we had a uh, free banking system. There, there was no sort of main central bank. The uh, U.S. Treasury did not issue banknotes. We had over 1,000 banks issuing their own banknotes, all standardized dollar-unit banknotes, like the slower coins. The pink bars here represent the total banknotes outstanding out of all those 1,000-plus issuing banks. Uh, once again, a wiggly line. It kind of goes up and down a lot. Uh, the green shows the bullion held in reserve by those independently operating banks uh, in aggregate. Uh, not a 100% reserve system. In fact, the, the average reserve holding is only about 20%. Um, after 1880, uh, we have sort of like a, a quasi-government free banking system, national bank system. We have a lot of U.S. Treasury-issued gold certificates in circulation. Same story, uh, pink shows the total base money, green shows the bullion reserves of the total system. Um, and so now we have some information. We know that in 1775, the total money exist in existence in the United States was roughly $12 million, mostly in the form of gold and silver foreign coins. Uh, 125 years later, 1900, there's $1,954 million of base money. An increase of 163 times. People say, oh, gold standard system can't expand to accommodate an expanding economy. Well, 163 times bigger, I think that's expansion. 
the U.S. economy did expand during that time with the gold standard system. In fact, it was the most successful economy of that time. Um, the amount of gold in the world uh, due to mining production increased by about 3.4 times during this period. So, you know, 3.4 is not the same as 163. Uh, the amount of money in the, in the dollar-based money system was not related to gold mining. Here is the uh, above ground world gold supply. Uh, we don't really consume gold. Uh, every year we dig a little more out of the ground and it just kind of stacks up over time in, in vaults and in, in form of jewelry and so forth. It's a growth rate of about 2% a year and over many, many years, decades, it actually adds up to quite a lot. This is a smooth curve, the smooth curve of, of mining production. And it's good just to kind of see what, what it looks like, I think. How much gold is there in the world? Uh, this is annual production as represented by the uh, growth rate of the total above ground world gold supply. Once again, it averages about 2%, just like you hear. But I think what's important here is that it doesn't really vary by 2% by that much. There's a couple years above 3%. There's a few years below 1.5%. This is over 150 years of data. And so even in times of high production, you know, the so-called gold rush periods, it's not like production goes up like five to 10 times or something like that. It goes up, you know, from two to two and a half percent. Who cares, right? And low production goes from, you know, two to 1.75%. So production has also been very stable during this period. Uh, this is the final 90 years of the gold standard system in the United States, 1880 to, to 1970. Uh, once again, as one would expect during that period, we have an enormous expansion of the monetary base in general. 53 times uh, in terms of ounces of gold taking into account the 1933 devaluation. Uh, mining supply increased the uh, amount of gold in the world by 6.5 times during this period. Once again, 53, 6.5, no relation. The gold reserves of the system uh, varied all over the place as low as 15%, actually was over 100% for a few years during World War II. Um, and so that's what it looked like. You know, that's what a real gold standard system looks like in practice, United States, 90-year period. Something is not working here. <laughs> not moving. Uh, okay. Now, okay, uh, another thing I want to, uh, you know, kind of dispel with is this idea that you hear from sometimes, even from academics who are supposed to be kind of sophisticated, that uh, in the gold standard system, trade imbalances would be matched with gold flows or something, something like that. Uh, this is Britain, 1850-1913. Current account balance in blue, uh, net gold exports in orange, no relation. It's bogus. <laughs> Didn't work that way. Uh, okay. Okay. Uh, another similar topic uh, you hear is that a gold standard system creates balanced trade. Uh, these are current account balances as a percentage of GDP, 1870 to 1913 for a number of countries. Uh, this is not balanced trade, <laughs> you know, so-called balanced trade. Uh, we have these funny terminology, these it's actually mercantilist terminology, the balance of payments imbalances is actually a, a funny, strange word for international capital flow. And there was, this is an era of globalization. There are a lot of international capital flows, mostly from the developed Europe to the emerging markets. There's enormous amount of expansion in Latin America and Asia and Africa at this time. Um, so obviously this, you know, balanced trade stuff is not true.
This is the same data, uh, just bringing it up to the present. That gold standard pre-1913 uh, gold standard period uh, actually was a degree of capital, globalization of capital, uh, that was unmatched in the last 10 years. So you don't usually take the you know, claim balance trade for the most imbalanced period of the last 200 years, um, but people do it anyway. <laughs> Okay, a last uh, topic I want to deal with shortly is this, uh, you know, idea that we don't have enough gold. Well, you saw the above ground gold figures. We have a heck of a lot more gold today than we did in 1910. In fact, it's roughly seven times more gold than we had in 1910. But even so, Bank of England, remember them? Uh, the premier institution of its time, British pound was the premier international currency. How much gold did the Bank of England have in its vaults compared to the total amount of gold in the world at the time? And it turns out that between 1845 and 1913, roughly a 70-year period, it averaged about 1.5%. Bank of England ran the world gold monetary system with 1.5% of all the gold in the world. And we have seven times more now. How can that not be enough? Obviously, it's enough. So how might we get back to this sort of classical way of, of doing things? Uh, well, you have to embrace the classical ideal of money. You have to abandon all this hope that you're going to manage the economy by jiggering with currency and fussing with interest rates and all this stuff. And we've been doing it for 42 years, and you know, you saw the results. Not that great, actually. So it's not something that's particularly difficult to give up. But I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, uh, Fed, ECB, Congress, European Parliament going to just throw all that stuff out the window. Nah, I'm not really seeing it. I agree, but there are actually over 160 countries in the world. Um, most of them actually have already a monetary policy which is fundamentally classical in nature. Most of them have some kind of link with a major international currency, the dollar or the euro. Uh, they're either using the dollar itself, El Salvador, for example, doesn't have a domestic currency. They're using the euro itself, actually you know, more than 20-something, almost 30 countries using the euro. They have a formal currency board arrangement. Uh, you know, dozens of countries have those. Uh, they have some kind of hard peg that's maintained with sort of this capital controls and stuff uh, like China. Or they have a loose uh, a peg where they sort of officially have a floating, you know, sort of freely floating currency, but in practice it stays in a pretty well-defined trading band. And if, if it goes out of the trading band, then everyone gets, you know, uppity and they do something to get back in. Taiwan dollar, uh, you know, Korean won, Russian ruble, that sort of thing. And especially those countries that have a tight link or actually use the euro, they don't have a domestic monetary policy. They don't have a central bank governing board that says, you know, we're going to solve unemployment by moving the interest rate target from XYZ to PDQ. They're not, they don't have, you know, QE and all this stuff. They, uh, they just have a simple value link. If you have a currency board linked to the euro, politically, they've already, they're already in a, in a classical framework of all you need to do is change your target from the euro to gold and you're done. And there's a reason they don't do this, because at the present situation, it would create too much uh, disruption. But um, intellectually, they're almost there. Uh, once you've adopted the classical view, your goals is to make the most stable currency possible, then the gold standard system is simply means to end. It just slots right in. It's like, yeah, I'll just, I'm obviously going to take the best solution. We know what it is. Bam, we're done. Uh, international agreements are not necessary. We kind of have this Bretton Woods fantasy. We're all going to get together and have some kind of uh, thing like this. doesn't have to work that way. It didn't work that way in the 19th century, as I document in my book. 
countries can act independently. Large gold reserves are not necessary. We saw that in the case of Britain. Leadership likely to come from China, Russia, and Germany, not the United States. Medvedev and his coin, he's telling you what's going on. Uh, the first examples might be small countries like Panama, the Gulf states, the African countries. I say, you know, the first country to, to uncork a, the first gold standard currency of the modern age might be Nepal. They have a history of gold and silver money, just as we do, just as every country, culture in the world does. It might be Nepal, it might be Pakistan, it might be Iran, which is having a little bit of fiat money trouble right now. It might be Venezuela, it might be Bolivia, it might be El Salvador, it might be Antigua. Who knows? Who knows what the political situation is like in those countries? They might be ready to go tomorrow. Uh, a parallel gold-based currency allows the easiest transition from today's dollar-centric world. I didn't talk about this. So I have a whole chapter of it in my book in that you don't necessarily have to take in the existing Costa Rican colon and transitioning to a gold standard currency. You can actually introduce a, another currency. You can have the existing fiat currency and have a gold-based alternative. I think this is, has quite a lot of promise. Bitcoin is one sort of example of that. Uh, you could have a private market Bitcoin-like gold-based alternative currency, which would be one way of doing that. But I, you know, whatever the solution is, it's going to require government sanction. People think, oh, I don't want the, I want the government out of my money. Well, uh, you know, if they make it illegal and they do all kinds of, you know, money laundering stuff and, and you can't use it, then you're going to need the government support at some level, basically. Uh, free banking approaches can certainly work. We have a long history of free banking in the United States. Uh, it still exists in places like Hong Kong. You can do it that way. You can do it with a monopoly currency. Uh, provider like Britain did. Um, each country is likely to choose its own unique path. The, the intellectual situation, the political situation, the realities for each country is different. Um, what a solution that might be great for Germany might not be good at all for Cambodia and vice versa. Um, let each country do it the way it wants to do it. There's a thousand different ways that it will work. Thank you. That's what I wanted to say for today. I, I'm, I'm glad that uh, gave me a chance to say it here. Uh, Gold, the Monetary Polaris, 2013. Gold, the Fonts in Future Money. A uh, little different kind of book. It's got a little different content. I think you might enjoy that too. Uh, my website is newworldeconomics.com. I got a lot of material there that's not in the book. And uh, thank you for letting me speak today. And I think we have some time for a Q&A and so forth. Well, we're going to turn it over to, to Larry for certainly one of the more sophisticated academics that, that I know. So let's... Uh, <laughs> Let Larry take the podium, and we'll have him offer a few comments. Great. Thank you, Nathan. Okay, I've uh, I've enjoyed uh, cramming on Nathan's book in the uh, couple of weeks I've had to uh, look through it. Um, I'm coming to you from the uh, foreign land of academia where the gold standard is considered a sort of out-to-lunch idea, and it's, it's kind of a puzzle given the track record that the gold standard has. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, a survey of economists at top schools, uh, Harvard, Yale, Stanford, MIT, Berkeley, Chicago, Princeton, who are surveyed by something at the University of Chicago Business School uh, called the IGM Forum. Uh, they were asked to comment on the following proposition that 
if the U.S. replaced its discretionary monetary system with a gold standard, uh, the outcomes would be better for the average American. And here were the uh, responses. 40% uh, disagreed, 53% strongly disagreed. <laughs> uh, the others didn't answer. There was nobody who was uncertain, who agreed, or who strongly agreed. This is out of 40-some uh, respondents. And they were, uh, the respondents were invited to make their own comments in writing on the question. And my favorite came from uh, Austin Goolsby, who uh, is back at the University of Chicago after having worked for the administration, who uh, checked the strongly disagree box. And his comment was simply, Ish, has it come to this, that we have to discuss the gold standard? Right? It's so far beyond the pale in his view. Uh, but it's perplexing because, as uh, Nathan just showed you in amazing detail, and by the way, I think for the second edition of your book, you ought to make the charts in color, like the slides, because they really pop out that way. Um, uh, to, be, to say things in favor of the gold standard is sort of to put yourself outside the club. Uh, and if you're outside the club, the, the ex expression you sometimes hear is, well, you seem to have faith in the gold standard. Uh, but I don't have faith in the gold standard. And Nathan doesn't have faith in the gold standard. We have evidence. <laughs> we have evidence that the gold standard works. And Nathan's book is a good presentation of that evidence. Uh, he starts out with the question of what is a gold standard. Uh, Nathan mentioned to me earlier uh, before we went on that he had seen my book, The Theory of Monetary Institutions. And there, the definition I give, of, the most generic definition of a gold standard uh, is that a gold standard is when money is meaningfully denominated uh, in units of gold, which means two things. Money is the medium of account, it's the stuff in terms of which prices are posted and computed. So some unit of gold is the unit of account, right? The thing you see on price tags. And in much of US history, the dollar was just a name for so many ounces of gold. Uh, but there's a second thing that makes the meaningful part of it, which is that uh, gold denominated pieces of money, if they're made of paper, say, or if they're bank uh, account balances, they're redeemable for gold. Gold is the medium of redemption. You can go to the bank and get gold back for your bank liabilities. Uh, Nathan is a little less strict than that. So you invite an academic, you're going to get quibbles. Here's my quibble. Uh, he doesn't insist that gold has to be the medium of redemption in order for you to call it a gold standard. Uh, he defines a gold standard as a system with a precise policy goal of fixing the ratio of dollars to ounces of gold or whatever the unit of account name is uh, to ounces of gold. Uh, my view is that a gold standard doesn't need to have a policy maker, and so it doesn't need to have a policy goal. Right? It's a spontaneous order that emerges from the market. If there's a ratio that's being aimed at, but the way it's being aimed at is by the central bank targeting the market price of gold, I wouldn't call that a gold standard. Uh, I would call that a fiat standard with a gold price target. And I think there's an important difference in the sort of level of commitment that that kind of system would involve. Uh, so historically, I mean, where the historical payoff is, 
is the question of whether the Bretton Woods system counts as a gold standard. Uh, well, for U.S. citizens, no. I mean, U.S. citizens could not redeem their dollars for gold. They were, in fact, forbidden up till 74 from owning gold uh, in physical form, in monetary form. Uh, European central banks, uh, all the banks that were signatories to Bretton Woods, they could redeem their dollars for gold at $35 an ounce, except not quite freely. The U.S. pressured them not to redeem when the U.S. Treasury started running out of gold. And sometime in the 1960s, basically, uh, the, the Federal Reserve System stopped being constrained by its gold reserve position. And I would date that occurrence uh, basically when Keynesians took over the Council of Economic Advisors uh, in the Kennedy administration. Uh, so I'm not sure the, the Fretton Wood system, at least in the 60s, counts as a gold standard. It wasn't really constrained by the rules of the game. Uh, two things we do agree about strongly uh, that you saw in one of uh, Nathan's slides is a gold standard doesn't require a central bank. It's not a set of instructions for a central bank. Uh, it's a constraint on a central bank if you have a central bank on the gold standard. And secondly, it doesn't require 100% reserves um, for gold-denominated bank accounts. I think Nathan did a good job of today and in the book of emphasizing the main benefits, the main merits of a gold standard by contrast to fiat standards. Lower average inflation rate, uh, lower average expected inflation rate, that means it's less costly for people to hold money. It means it's less costly for people to save in the form of money. Those are both very important for economic performance. Uh, secondly, there's less uncertainty about, about the price level five or 10 or 20 or 30 years down the road. Uh, in a paper that I was a co-author of, published in 2012, we, my co-authors and I, mostly the guy who does the time series econometrics, tried to provide some actual estimates of the difference in price level uncertainty between the gold standard period and the post-gold standard period in the U.S., and it's quite dramatic. You have much less danger of being way off in your guess about what the dollar is going to be worth 30 years from now under the gold standard than you do today. And so the symptom of that is long-term bond markets, for, at least for corporate bonds, have pretty much dried up. And there's only a market for 30-year Treasury bonds because the Federal Reserve buys so many of them. <laughs> uh, and there's a kind of an irony to the greater uh, price level uncertainty, which is individuals who want to have a hedge against inflation buy gold and hoard coins and bullion and as a result of that, the real price of gold has actually gone up since we left the gold standard. Central banks have stopped accumulating gold. They haven't sold much. But private individuals have accumulated a lot of gold for very understandable reasons. But the irony here is that one of the benefits of leaving the gold standard, Milton Friedman told us, was we could free up all this gold. We wouldn't bear the cost of digging gold out of the ground and burying it in vaults. Well, we don't bury it in central bank vaults anymore, but we bury it in all kinds of other vaults. Uh, so we haven't, we haven't saved that resource cost. Uh, so it would actually be cheaper to go back on a gold standard in terms of the amount of resources devoted to gold mining. Uh, 
third benefit, global network currency benefits. It, as Nathan said today, it's much easier to trade and invest across borders when you don't have to worry about exchange rate fluctuations, uh, the other country devaluing their, their currency, and you have wages to pay in that currency, or you have IOUs denominated in that currency. Uh, so you get more gains from cross-border trade and investment, and the classical gold standard was the period, the first period of international globalization. Uh, a fourth thing, which wasn't much mentioned today, fiscal discipline. It's harder to borrow money if you have to repay it in gold uh, because right, governments can't create gold out of thin air. It doesn't mean you can't run a deficit. It just means nobody will lend you the money unless you're committed to paying it back uh, with gold. So the evidence on the, the lower inflation rate, we saw some of it today. You can look at other evidence uh, in, in the paper I, uh, I co-authored that I mentioned, look at the U.S. price level over time. It's basically flat during the gold standard period. There's a slight decline, and then it comes back up. But that's a property of a gold standard. The, price, the purchasing power of money is mean reverting. If gold goes down in value a little bit, gold mines slow down their production. Value of gold comes back up. If the value of gold rises, gold mines speed up their production a little bit. Value of gold comes back down. And I, I like the chart very much, which showed that even during the California gold rush, the amount of increase, which was not in response to a low price of gold, uh, sorry, a high value of gold, uh, the supply shocks to the supply of gold from the mining industry are pretty small. Uh, it didn't cause that much of a change. Around 1% inflation for a few years was the result of the California gold rush. So just look at the price level statistics, and it's quite remarkable how stable the power, uh, purchasing power of money was. By contrast, under fiat standards, every country that's had experience with both has had much higher inflation under uh, fiat standards. Um, let me more directly address the book and sort of walk you through it more systematically <laughs> than Nathan did. Uh, it's not an academic book, as, as Steve Forbes mentioned, uh, in both senses. One, it's actually entertainingly written. <laughs> uh, but sadly, from my point of view, uh, it doesn't have enough footnotes. <laughs> uh, I mean, many of the charts don't have footnotes. Uh, and so it's harder for me to track down the original source of the data. So. I'll have to write to Nathan and ask him where he, the, the data came from that uh, are underlying his most, uh, the, the charts I'd most like to steal and show it to my classes. Uh, I really liked his table contrasting the classical view to the mercantilist view. It's also in the book. But I'm not sure mercantilist is the best label for the anti-classical view. Uh, I mean, there's... I kind of like the, the poetic justice of it. Keynes famously or notoriously labeled all non-Keynesians classicals, <laughs> even though there were big differences of opinion among them. And Nathan is kind of returning the favor. Uh, he's labeling Keynesians mercantilists. Any attempt to sort of sort all thinkers into two boxes is going to run into some cases that don't quite fit. 
The problem with mercantilist is that today the term mostly means people who are against free trade. I mean, that's what it suggests to us. Mercantilist monetary policy is not what most people think of when they ask whether somebody's a mercantilist. And mercantilist monetary policy wasn't all soft money. James Stewart, yes. But other mercantilists were in favor of gold standards. And you might even say they liked gold too much. Their view of the proper monetary policy was always accumulate gold and never let it go. So pass laws against exporting gold coins, give bounties to merchants who sell more abroad than they buy so that they bring gold in. Um, so I'm not sure mercantilist is the best label for the anti-classical. I, I think soft money, which was his alternative label, is a better label. Um, I don't think it's right to call Mer Milton Friedman a mercantilist because he's a strong free trader. And it's true he's a strong critic of the gold standard, or was early in his career. Um, but Friedman actually came around and talked later on about the costs of a fiat standard in terms of people hoarding gold, as I just mentioned, in terms of the cost devoted to Fed watching, which you don't need under a gold standard, in terms of the cost of inflation. Holding paper currency when it's melting in value makes people run through hoops to keep their money balances really low. Um, I think uh, people uh, inspired by Friedman who are willing to look at the evidence can uh, come around. So. I don't think there's any point in uh, insulting Friedman. Um, I like the chapter two, which is about how a gold standard worked. And Nathan points out the, the two basic principles, uh, fixing the unit account value of an ounce of gold, and second, making it work by having some way of actually keeping paper money at its par value in terms of gold. I would put more emphasis on redeemability as the way of doing that. I wouldn't describe it as adjusting the degree of artificial scarcity of banknotes uh, the way he does. Um, I have some really minor quibbles about what we call base money, but I'll skip that. Uh, I have one serious historical complaint, and this is a statement that comes on page thir 31. Uh, this is what Nathan says about the Federal Reserve Act, quote, the banks got together and created a central bank in the form of the Federal Reserve, unquote. I don't think that's quite what happened. Uh, the Federal Reserve was actually created by a conspiracy among a handful of men known as the U.S. Congress. <laughs> uh, it was not the banking industry. There were some bankers who were in favor of it. There were other bankers who were against it. Right? But it's an act of legislation. What the bankers got together and spontaneously created were commercial bank clearinghouse associations. And they did a lot of things to make banking easier, and in particular, to make interbank payments more convenient. Uh, they didn't need a Federal Reserve System to do that. Uh, chapters three to five go through the history of gold standards in the US, the UK, Holland, in the world as a whole. Probably the most important part of the book are chapters 4 to 12, which go through seven varieties of gold standards. And I think this is an important point, that there's not just one type of gold standard. Uh, his case one is redeemability with 100% reserves. Um, I wish he had taken on more forcefully or more directly the arguments in favor of 100% reserves, which I think are pretty weak. Uh, number two is 
redeemability with fractional reserves, but a single currency issuer. Number three is non-redeemability, but with a gold uh, target. And he discussed whether the, this could actually work. Uh, four is linking to a gold-based reserve currency indirectly. Uh, sorry, so linking to gold indirectly by directly linking to another currency. That's what most countries did under Bretton Woods other than the US. And I think Nathan's certainly right that you wouldn't want that if you could have either a direct link or what he calls a hybrid system. Hybrid system is what he calls the way the Bank of England operated. Uh, number six is free banking. And I was excited to see that there was a chapter entitled free banking. I was disappointed to find that the entire discussion is about the US experience and a little bit about Hong Kong. There's a lot more free banking history out there. I've written some of it. <laughs> there are lots of countries that had very successful uh, systems where the, the basic, the currency, the paper currency and the checking accounts were issued by competing private institutions. Uh, Scotland, Canada, Sweden, Switzerland, and so on. Those are the best examples of deregulated private money issue showing that there's no need for a central bank to manage the whole thing. The obligation to redeem liabilities for gold, a contractual obligation that's enforceable in a court of law, that made the system run. Uh, that made it self-regulating. Uh, number seven is entitled End the Fed, which basically means free banking, except uh, Nathan considers whether we need a lender of last resort. And uh, I'd say, I, I would say under our current system, we need a lender of last resort because we've hobbled the banks so much. But in a system where banks are self-reliant, in a system like Scotland's, there wasn't any official lender of last resort and there didn't need to be. Uh, before the Federal Reserve in the US, the banks were weak, but they organized self-help through their clearinghouse associations. So there were lenders of last resort, but many of them and all unofficial. And the last part of the book uh, talks about transitioning either by officially relinking to gold or by letting a parallel gold currency arise. Um, and I also think that uh, we should pursue both avenues, but letting a parallel gold currency arise as Nathan just said, requires repealing the laws that are preventing it. Um, at the Cato Monetary Conference in November, I talked about some of the laws that are preventing it and have been used to bust individuals like the Liberty Dollar issuer um, and also eGold, who have tried to provide private uh, gold or silver-based alternatives, but which have been crushed either by the laws against minting your own coins which are a relic of the Civil War, or the money laundering, know your customer rules uh, for money transmitters. So those need to be rethought in a way that makes it possible for people to introduce money transfer systems that aren't rooted through the Federal Reserve System. Right? The feds have to be prevented from trying to stamp all that out uh, on the grounds that uh, some criminals use these kinds of systems, therefore nobody should be allowed to use them. Um, so we need to level the playing field and given the track record of the gold standard, I have no doubt that people will find gold attractive. Uh, I think we also need to go forward with trying to relink 
the existing currencies to gold because uh, you're kind of out on a limb if you put yourself back on the gold standard now. Right? There are a lot of people who won't trade with you unless you use dollars, so you have to keep some, at least some of your spending balances in dollars. And so there's kind of a critical mass problem. It's going to be hard to assemble a critical mass. While gold is demonetized, the value of gold is quite volatile, just like the value of Bitcoin is quite volatile, gold a little less, because gold actually has some industrial uses and some non-monetary demand, whereas Bitcoin has neither of those. So it's pure speculation. Uh, but it's great to see the uh, literature on the gold standard expanding and being made, written in a way that is accessible to a wider audience. I'm not very good at that. <laughs> so congratulations to Nathan, and uh, I look forward to Q&A. Well, thank you, Larry. Well, we've got some uh, time for a few questions. I will ask you to wait till the microphone gets to you. I will also ask that you actually have a question uh, rather than a statement. Uh, <laughs> let's take a question over here. And while the microphone is getting there, let me also uh, thank and recognize my colleague, John Tamney, who really uh, helped put this event together today and actually did a whole lot more work than I did. So uh, let me thank you for that. And we'll start with the question over here. Um, hi, my name is Theodore Gebhardt. I'm a retired um, antitrust law and economics practitioner. Um, I have a question for Mr. Lewis and a question for Mr. White. Um, at the 2012 Cato Economic Conference, um, one of the speakers was Douglas Irwin from Dartmouth. And um, he delivered a paper um, that looked at the interwar, the gold standard under the interwar years. And if I recollect correctly, um, uh, the gist of the paper is that there was a lot of cheating on the part of the major industrial countries um, uh, with respect to the gold standard, principally France, but also the UK and the US. And my question is, if uh, the world were to return to a gold standard, how would that kind of cheating be prevented or what kind of enforcement mechanism would exist? And if I might briefly, a quick question to Professor White. Um, you, you said that the arguments for 100% um, reserve requirement are rather weak. Um, if I understand correctly, uh, the principal argument is that it ties credit creation to real savings. Why is that a weak argument? Um, is this working here? Okay. Um, I think the interwar years are, are uh, I, I haven't, I'm not familiar with the paper that you mentioned, um, but in general, I think that they are, uh, there's a lot of people like to project a lot of bogeymen on them because they want to find some excuse for the Great Depression in there somewhere. I don't really see that. The basic thing that keeps the thing, in, uh, you don't need some policemen to, to say whether you're doing things correctly or not, because if you're not doing things right, your currency is going to fall apart. <laughs> For you, know, Mother Nature kind of takes care of it for you, uh, and the fact that currencies at that time it was always quite brief, 1925 to 1931. But the fact that currencies at the time uh, did not vary from their gold parities and were not, for the most part, maintained with heavy capital controls and this sort of thing, indicates to me that actually uh, the participants were more or less 90 plus percent uh, doing what they should have been doing at the time. In my opinion. Do you want to take a stab at either? Yeah, uh, I would say on the interwar period, 
um, central banks behaved badly, and some of them did fall apart, right? Britain f fell right off of the gold standard after a few years being back on after the First World War. And I think it shows that you need a gold standard that runs more automatically than at the discretion of central banks. Uh, and the Bank of France was a problem. It was piling up gold. The Bank of England was the opposite problem. It didn't have enough gold to actually, at the exchange rate they chose to go back at. But the real problem came from World War I, where everybody suspended the gold standard in order to print money. Uh, and then they tried to go back on the gold standard, at least Britain did, at the old parity when the price level was too high. They hadn't, uh, they, they were pursuing two inconsistent objectives. Not a problem with the gold standard, a problem with central banking. Are you, uh, are you trying to imply the government can mess up the gold standard? If they try hard enough, yes. Uh, but it is a leading academic argument against the gold standard that it didn't work during the interwar period, therefore. This is a so-called golden fetters thesis. Uh, and I think it's not the gold standard. If you look back at the classical period, it worked quite, that is before World War I, it worked quite fine. What changed? Central banks became more active in the interwar period and less committed to the gold standard. Uh, look, I come on there. Don't want to spend too much time on it, but I actually did read David uh, uh, Barry Eichenkrantz's book, right. Gold Fetters. And actually, oh, he's a Keynesian academic. Um, I actually thought his description of the period was more or less correct. Uh, and he doesn't actually make any great accusations of, of the central banks at the time. He said, just as Larry just mentioned, they were not the idea of what I call mercantilist funny money manipulation was growing in popularity. This this tended to add an element of instability because they're always worried about if the central bank or whatever, the currency manager were going to give up the gold standard discipline, which indeed they did in 1931. Um, so it was very valid worry. Um, but interesting, that book doesn't count, contain a lot of big, big uh, criticisms of the interwar period. Oddly enough, the big criticisms come from the gold standard advocates themselves, who once again, in my opinion, try to project excuses for the Great Depression upon that time. And I don't really, they don't really hold water in my opinion. John, did you have a question? Oh, sorry. Could I just say a little about oh, the second question, which was about uh, shouldn't we like a system in which credit creation is linked to genuine savings? And I think we do. We should like that. <laughs> and that's what happens under uh, free banking. When people hold fractional reserve bank liabilities, they are saving. And that is genuine saving that's being intermediated. Now, the bank has to make a guess about how long those balances are going to stay with the bank and they can get into trouble if they lend uh, for too long a period when their liabilities are short term. But you don't need 100% reserves in order to link uh, credit creation with savings. Um, John, do you have a question over here? Um, if we can bring a microphone. Uh, John, raise your hand so our microphone knows where to find you. Um, yeah, this one's directed at Steve and Nathan. Um, we've got three people, you two plus Cedric Muhammad, who knew Jude Winiski well. And Jude always made the point that the electorate is very smart. Is why do you is there a disconnect? Does the electorate want a return to stable money or or is there a disconnect and why do you think that exists? Um I'll, I'll start with it having been on the hustings myself. Uh, people do want stable money, but the reason uh, there's resistance to a gold standard, the resistance doesn't start when you say we should link the thing to gold. 
the resistance comes when people who are opposed to a gold standard bring up all of these bogeymen that it brings about pestilence, that it brings about depression, that it brings about unemployment, that it brings about uh, restrictions on uh, credit creation for businesses. So a lot of the myths that were discussed in those, uh, in those uh, charts are people then feel, well, maybe, maybe this isn't such a good idea. Maybe this is something of a relic. So stable money, yes, people get that instinctively. But the fear mongers have had the hold the hold hold of the field because there's been no anti fear mongering, very 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 little of it. Uh, very few people like Larry or Judy uh, out there making the counter arguments. So it's very easy to dominate the field and have Nobel Prize winners and presidential advisors saying, "Oh, this would be a disaster." And people say, "Well, maybe 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 this isn't such a good idea." That's the problem. We need counter arguments. That's why Nathan's book's so important. Start to get some critical mass. Nathan, did you want to address that, or I'm happy to go to another question here in front, real quick. Uh, microphone. Uh, sorry. Steve, could you? There you go. Let them so they can find you. Yes, uh, my question is addressed to all of you. Really, um, you've made a very convincing case that. You know, we should go on a gold standard that that it's almost like reasonable minds can't differ. If if all the reasons, uh, probably the most convincing always to me is that the historical evidence is so strong. Uh, but why is it that most economists, you know, look at this as like quackery or something to go on the gold standard? My question is, do you think it's because... So many macroeconomists are, are employed by the Federal Reserve that they kind of have a, a sort of, I'm not saying they're dishonest, but they have a, a sort of self-interest in wanting to or make sure that there's group, still group think, if nothing else. Yeah. Uh, maybe I'll have uh, Larry, since uh, you are a resident academic, do you want to start with that one? <laughs> I think that's a big part of it. Um, I think there's a difference among economists who have actually studied the gold standard. <laughs> They're not so scared of it. But uh, the fear-mongering affects uh, academics, too, who haven't really studied it. They sort of buy into the myth that... Uh, but there is a bit of self-interest, right? If we have a monetary system which, instead of being automatic, is run by experts, uh, Jim Grant likes to quip that we've gone from the gold standard to the PhD standard. Uh, then there are jobs for economists advising how monetary policy ought to be made. It's also an interesting uh, observation. I think it was Larry that mentioned um, the change in the and the Kennedy administration was when you had uh, Walter Heller at the CEA, you really had this change in terms of trying to stuff the Fed board with PhD economists. That wasn't the case. Uh, painful for me to say as a PhD economist, my guess is if you ran a regression on the number of PhD economists on the board, it probably just predicts inflation fairly well. Uh, I think, Judy, do you have a question? I think we have a study in the works. <laughs> uh, thank you. Judy Shelton with the Atlas Economic Research Foundation. A question for Nate. Um, it's so interesting, the idea, and so appealing uh, of the alternative goal-based currency that could run in parallel. And it seems to me that countries could independently agree to it with fairly minor changes in the law. Basically, their governments would, would 
say we agree to allow as legal tender our own currency and this this parallel gold-based currency. Do you think um, there are any lessons we can draw? And my knowledge is is not very deep on this, but it seems in the years before Euro, the, the, the Europeans transitioned to the Euro, I think it was Sir Alan Walters um, advising uh, Margaret Thatcher uh, about whether England would participate. And, and I think he had an idea of an alternative voluntary parallel currency. I think it would be called the 13th currency, commodity-based. He wanted to call it the e-com. And, and he, I don't know how far he got with it, but that seemed to me... Uh, his approach to have a voluntary 13th currency that would run alongside the euro, sort of as an, an escape clause that countries on the edge of deciding whether to join the euro could try the e-com. And it would also be a way to compare the performance of a commodity-based currency against this new idea of a fiat but joint common currency for Europe. Any Was that a government idea or, or did it, would it arise spontaneously, and would your idea, how do you see a parallel goal-based currency arising? Would it be privately launched or a government initiative? Uh, it could be both. Um, you know, you could have, uh, let's just pick some country, Canada could just sort of officially sanction, say, you know, if you guys want to come, all you Bitcoin guys, whatever, you want to come to Canada and set up some gold-based currency in Canada, you're going to have full government support. We're not going to kind of squash you with money laundering laws or whatever. Um, it could also be China, a little more of a authoritarian regime might have a different view. It's like, no, we're not going to let, we're going to keep control of the money. We're going to have the existing Chinese yuan, basically a dollar link. And we're also going to have the Chinese golden yuan issued by the government, but fully gold convertible and so forth. Um, we're going to make it available and you can use whatever one you want. Um, I think the idea of a parallel currency is for we've got been so brainwashed by the idea of a monopoly currency that we all have to use one issuer and you have to use it uh, to to the extent where quite sophisticated financial observers uh, that I know can't quite get their mind about it. And it's like you just have China, and then instead of the government having one currency, it has two currencies, and one's a one's the existing arrangement, one's a gold link thing. It's not that complicated, and they're just a disconnect. Uh, so it has nothing, it's not, practically as simple as anything, uh, but for whatever reason, people's imaginations haven't caught up there. Um, and, uh, you know, there are places like, you know, Zim when Zimbabwe, they had their hyperinflation, they had now have a uh, formal multi-currency uh, policy. You can use whatever you want, South African rands, euros, dollars, do business, whatever currency you like. And, and what actually in the most recent presidential election, as, as Cedric Mohammed will tell you, the... Zimbabwean government, which now has no currency, said, you know what? You can still use whatever currency you like, dollars, euros, South African rands, whatever, but we are going to introduce also a Zimbabwean gold-based currency. So that would be that um, right there. Uh, most countries in the world today already have an effective parallel currency system. They have some kind of local junk currency, you know, the Cambodian, whatever it is, you know, let or something. And people on the street from the smallest vendors to the largest corporations, including the government itself are also doing business in dollars and euros. <laughs> it's the parallel currency environment. You know, um, this is actually, you know, very, very common and uh, situation today. But for whatever reason, people have trouble imagining it. 
I think it's a very good point. We're so used to in the US of the dollar where much of the world there are multiple currencies circulating at any one time. Uh, we have hit up our time. I'm going to invite everyone upstairs to lunch. I know our panelists will stay around. And, and again, I'm sure Nathan will be delighted to sign a book. And Larry would be delighted to sign his paper. And I think Steve will be staying around a little bit, too. So I want to thank all of our panelists. And thank you for being such a great audience.